Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Eric Navas is from California, and he's an ex-member of a group called University Bible Fellowship, UBF. He was a member from 2013 to 2016. He was a freshman at a California State University when he first encountered this group. At the time, he didn't realize what it was until really after his departure, and then it all started coming together. The curtains were removed, as he says, and he saw UBF for what he believed it was, which is a religious Korean cult recruiting college students for the benefit of the higher-ups in the group. When he left the group, He was still in college, but successfully graduated a year later in 2017, and since then he's focused on his work and reconnecting with friends and family and, as he says, recovering his personality. Here's Eric now. So I am very excited to have Eric Navas on the show today. I'm so happy that you contacted me because you had this really interesting impact on me when you sent your email. You were mentioning a group I haven't heard about in a while. And I remember when I was first doing a lot of this work in the late 80s, early 90s, I heard a lot about this organization. And sometimes you wonder if they're still around, if you haven't heard about them. And from your email, I could tell they have been. And it also introduced me to this idea of something that I haven't really gotten into enough, I think, on the show, which is about how cults do so much of their recruiting on college campuses and what that's about and what we can do about it. And so it it brings us into whole other territory. And uh, also, I want you to be able to talk about your website and et cetera, et cetera. So we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So if you don't mind just taking a few minutes to introduce yourself and tell a little bit about you. So my name is Eric Navis. I graduated from Cal State Dominguez Hills. I'm the class of 2017. I was involved in a Bible cult called University Bible Fellowship, or UBF for short. I was there from August 2013, and I left on Halloween night um, 2016. So I was there for about three years, roughly. Okay, and so uh, UBF, or University Bible Fellowship, as you were saying, is... It's something, I think it's been around since the 1960s. Is that correct? I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly, that it came over from Korea. Yes, it originally came from Korea. It actually started during the Cold War when Sarah Barry, the co-founder and the founder of the late Dr. Lee, they were recruiting students to start this organization. Originally was part of the Presbyterian Church. But when they moved to the U.S. in the mid-70s, they broke off from the Presbyterian Church. So ever since they broke off, they're not part of any mainline or mainstream organization. Okay. The early 60s, that's when it was officially like, it became official registration and all whatnot. Okay. And then it came to the U.S. in 1978, I believe. Even though the U.S. is where they have the most, I guess, branches, it was the second country they pioneered, um, so to speak. The first country they actually pioneered was Germany. And that was, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. Wow. 
Germany. That's interesting. Okay, so you were involved 2013, 2016. So what was the draw? What was the thing that made you interested? So what made me interested in the first place, because I was at a point in my life where I was really thinking about the future. I was wondering like what to do with my life. And that's how I got drawn in the first place, because I believe there's some higher power out there. And I wanted to get to know this higher power and have a relationship with him. And that's what really, that's what kind of drawed me in the first place. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it said to you or the group said to you that it was going to give you this sense of purpose, sense of meaning. Is that one of the things that was appealing? Yes, that was one of the things that was appealing. It was it was the idea that you can be this person who saves other people, saves lives. So by, you know, teaching people the gospel and telling everybody about God's purpose as they put in their own words. Okay. Okay. So you could become a savior in your own way, which is certainly going to make you feel that your life has meaning and purpose that comes together really well. And I'm wondering also about the social aspect of it. A lot of people I know talk about how when they got involved in something on a college campus, one of the things that was appealing was that they were away from their family and away from their friends. And these became their new friends and their new family. Was that part of it for you as well? Yes, it was definitely part of it because uh, my family, like we're we're good terms, but you know, at the time I was in good terms with my family. Also, I wasn't too close to my family. And also when I first got involved, I was a freshman, so I didn't have a lot of friends or knew a lot of people. So it just gave me that sense of community. Mm-hmm. After a year, they expect you to be a Bible teacher to recruit other people. They want you to be essentially a human shepherd. It's one of the remnants of the shepherding movement that started in the 60s. And so can you explain just a little bit about the shepherding movement for people who are not familiar with that term? So for the shepherding movement, for those who don't know, and I encourage people to do additional research on this as well. So shepherding movement was essentially was the idea that you would have a human shepherd, a human Bible teacher to guide you, not just only teach you the Bible, but be your, I guess, your guide in your life, someone who could tell you or show you how to live a Christian life. On paper, it sounded like a good idea, but in reality, it didn't work because what ended up happening was all kinds of abuse sprouted out because of the results. So even though there was intention, it had the opposite effect. The financial abuse, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, the human shepherd, the, the Bible teacher would try to take the place of God. They would try to take the place of the Holy Spirit. Which in reality, no human being can do that because because the God they teach and preach about is supposed to be perfect God, but no human being mm-hmm. can actually take the place of the Holy Spirit. So in a way, they act as a third party. They act as the mediator. They believe that mm-hmm. in order to have a relationship with God, you always need a middleman. But I come to learn, you know, after I left and doing research on, you know, Christian history, and reading Christian books, literature, that's not the case. You can essentially have a relationship with God without a third party. So they made it seem like this was necessary to have in your life in order to have a relationship with God. You mentioned something about the spiritual abuse, and then you also mentioned financial and sexual abuse. Can you talk about both of those? Yes. So for the spiritual abuse, what they would do is that they would essentially guilt trip you. They would say, in UBF, they believe that there's only one application to serve God. So in order to serve God, please God, you need to please God's servant or, you know, which is another 
phrase for your Bible teacher and that that's the only way to establish a relationship. You need that third person. God's servant or your Bible teacher that's one who mediates over you, they end up, whether, whether they realize or not, they end up kind of abusing their power. Or if something were to happen in the church, let's say if somebody if somebody was breaking the law, if somebody was harassing someone else, if somebody was the one tried to force themselves upon someone else or got physical, you were told to look the other way. How they would spiritually abuse this was they would reference the passage in Genesis where you know, a son's covered up their father's nakedness. So they would use that passage as a justification to, to get away with any wrongdoing that happens in the church. And there were times where authorities should have been involved with certain things that happened, but members were told and or pressured to not say anything and to keep it under the rug. Uh-huh. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you don't have to mention people's names, but do you have examples of things like that so people understand what you're talking about? What What are some of the things that they swept under the rug? There's some things swept under the rug. There was, um, there was many cases in Canada, in the Canada UBF, the, the branch in Canada, and there was one particular case where there was a member, this is in the 80s, where one of the Bible teachers and one of the UBF missionaries raped this member. And she became so traumatized about it. And she was pressured by the other members who who knew about it was to just keep just just look the other way and not say anything about it. But eventually she came out and spoke about it to the authorities. And what ended up happening was they turned against her, saying that you shouldn't do that because it's God's servant and you're supposed to do what he said absolutely no matter what happened. And a more recent Recent cases were in the headquarters chapter, there is a music instructor who supposed to preside over the children of UBF members. And there was this guy who would, would commit child pornography. He would molest members. This also happened in the New York branch as well. Okay. And so then regarding things that happen sometimes in groups, and I don't, you know, I don't have the, uh, the evidence on this or the proof, but the thing that is important to me is, as with many other organizations, if you feel that something bad has happened to you, you go to someone within the organization and then they don't do anything about it or they make you feel like you're wrong for even saying something about it. And then it just continues. So it sounds like that's what you're saying here as well. Yeah, exactly. So the thing about UBF is that whenever something good happens, it's always collective. It's always like, you know, you have to give credit to the group. You always have to praise God and God's servant. And when something bad happens, you're you're supposed to either zip it or they make it seem like it's your fault in some kind of way when something bad happens. The group would never take any responsibility for it. Right. So only responsibility taken for things that were good in your life, but not things that were bad. That's that's pretty common, unfortunately, with groups like this. And and same thing also I've noticed in controlling relationships where a person uh, might be very abusive towards you, but they will also want to take credit for anything that happens to you, you know, that's positive, but not negative. It's just, I think it's a mark of something that is controlling. And you also mentioned financial abuse. So what is that about? So the financial abuse, my parents, they're, they're pretty lenient as far as finances, but on most other branches, especially when the founder was still alive, as I note, he actually died he died mysteriously. He died in a house fire back in January 2002. But when he was alive, he would always, he was very financially abusive. He always demand 
members to meet a certain quota whenever they give offerings on Sundays. And when like weddings happen, they were expected to donate a certain amount of money. And whenever they go to conferences, you always have to pay for the conferences. And the amount is always in the hundreds. It would be like 300, 400, some cases $600. You're expected to pay all that upfront when you register someone or when you go to their weddings. And if you don't, you're considered ungrateful. You're, in, you're considered unfaithful or hedonistic in cases. Wow. And so how would students pay these kinds of amounts? There was a lot of like really insane ways people would try to pay for it. Some people, some members would sell their rings. Some even went as far as to donate blood. There was one case where a member sold their body just to get enough money just to go to one of these conferences. And when I heard about that, I was, it was pretty, it was, it was really insane to me. Yeah. And so when you talk about them having been around for a long time and you say that they're still around, do, you know, a lot of these groups go by different kind of front names. They change their names so it's, they're not as obvious. Does UBF do the same thing or does it go by UBF? What should people be watching out for? Yeah, so the thing about UBF is that they still use front groups. The thing is, though, the organization as a whole, like internationally, globally, so to speak, they still use UBF. Though the individual branches, they're also known as chapters, they would always have a some kind of front. For the one I went to, the actual name for it is El Camino UBF. And how the, each chapter or branch is named is named after the city that they mainly represent or the cause they first pioneered. So the chapter... The branch I was from, the first college, they started recruiting people with El Community College in Torrance. So that's why it's called Community UBF. But they have a different name. They're called Shepherd's Church in Gardena. So for a long time, it was until recently when I made videos about it on my channel. That's when I revealed like that's the, that's the front group. They have different names. As far as I know, no, as far as I know, mainstream Mainstream, mainline Christian churches don't do that. Charities don't do that. Only criminals and cults or someone who has an interior motive or a sick agenda would use a different name. So the UBF overall still has their name UBF, but the individual like smaller branches have, have their own front group. And the problem is there's no cohesive list of the front groups. In fact, the, only, the leaders don't even report the front groups to the headquarters So even the headquarters of the organization doesn't even know all the front group names. So you really have to, so it is tricky, but there is, there is a way, there's a way to figure out if it's from UBF or not. And one of the biggest ways you can find out is, is how they approach students when they recruit them. The two things they, they would definitely tell people is that it's always one-to-one -one Bible studies. That's a big giveaway. And the other one is that they always claim to be a non-denominational church. In reality, they're not part of any denomination also. I think those two are the biggest factors to tell if it's from UBF or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to listen for the one-on-one, one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one Bible study? Yes. And then also that it's non-denominational. And so that the, those are really good things to watch out for. And it's also good, it seems like, that you know, it could be that other groups that are recruiting people or that are trying to get new members in might say similar things. So it seems like you want to check out the name of the organization and look it up. And so where would someone be able to do that kind of research online? 
So for the research, to do research, I would definitely, you would need to definitely ask like, what's the pastor's name? What's the leader's name? And look that up. And also you want to check to see if the group is registering campus or not, because 98% of them are not registering campus. So even though it's called University Bible Fellowship, is they have no association with any campus and all. That's just the impression they give. So for the most part, they're not registering campus or those who are, they also use a different name when they register. There are those that use the actual name, but that's extremely rare. Right. And when you see that, when you see so many other names being used for a group, it does make you wonder what is it that they're trying to hide? Uh, Because why can't they just be out there about their organization and what they're affiliated with? But also the fact that it's called University Bible Fellowship, but it's not necessarily affiliated with the university that you're going to in the university where you're being recruited and the university where they're on, where they're on and maybe even having some of their Bible study meetings and who knows what. Um, and so you don't want to, it seems, take it at face value that this is an organization that your university or that your college likes or even knows about. Um, have you heard stories of people getting involved and then dropping out of school because of their involvement? As far as I know, I don't know anyone who's ever dropped out of school. I know some cases where people would drop, would leave their job, they would, they would change their housing. There were some people who would abandon their scholarships or kind of programs. I know two cases in the chapter I used to go to were a member who who recently left. He explained how he dropped the master's program because he was encouraged by his Bible teacher to follow God's direction, which is translation with the real saying is following what the Bible teacher wants him to do. So something else that you mentioned to me before was about the fact that they are on the FBI and CIA watch list. So that's very important information, I think. And kind of takes it into a different realm where it's not just, you know, some group on campus. So do you know why they're on these watch lists? Okay, for the FBI one, when I look at the document, the reason why they were on investigating in the first place was due to visa fraud. And one of the, mem- an older member, he's also my friend named Brian Karcher. He also wrote a book called Denise Natchez. And he has confirmed with me uh, during the 70s and 80s, the UBF leaders have committed a visa fraud where they would get their passports through a black market in order to travel to different countries, especially in Germany, because, you know, the political and historical events that happened in Germany at the time. Mm. So that's why the investigation started. And that's as early as the 80s. And for the CIA one, that case was made in August 2002. So I'm not sure what that one's about. I did do a Freedom of Information Act request. So I'm still waiting to hear back on that. But my theory is it may have something to do with the founder's death. The circumstances around the founder's death was weird because he claimed the founder was had some plans for UBF. And also around the time he died, UBF had a, I won't say a civil war, but they had a schism, a big split, because a lot of the leaders, a lot of branches left at the time, right before his death. And the year before he died, a lot of the leaders, the, the older leaders from Korea went to the U.S. to meet with him, but he refused to talk to him, which is a characteristic of a dictator who doesn't want to have open discussion or let alone admit that they're in the wrong of anything. Mm. Okay. And so I'm wondering for you, and certainly jump in with any other details that you want to jump in with, but I'm wondering about during the course of the time that you were involved and then you needed to spend more and more time and probably more and more money, I'm assuming, if it was financial abuse. 
Take us to Halloween Eve. What happened? What was that turning point for you? So even before the Halloween I left, I had to prepare myself to leave because I'm an absolute person. I don't like compromising. So prior to it, I actually wanted to leave several months before. The reason being was I realized that the cults, the members were were definitely, they're okay. And they'll even advocate betraying each other. And I was not okay with that because I remember the biblical story of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. And when Jesus found out, he was very hurt. So if the son of God is not okay with betrayal, how could anybody be? And they didn't make sense to me. So that's when I realized I had to leave because that was I was not okay with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're saying that they're advocating betraying each other. So is that something you were instructed to do or people were instructed to do with you? Yes, they were instructed. They're instructed to spy on each other if they suspect anyone who was not fully loyal to a group or loyal to a group or they were doing something that the group didn't, the Bible teacher or the group leader didn't want them to do or go and report them to, you know, the higher ups in UBA. And that's what other people did to me because um, one act of betrayal, what happened was I was, I invited one member to my house, you know, and he met my family and I was telling him how, what I really felt about the group. And then later that week, when I went to my Bible study, my teacher got angry at me or reprimanded me for like being ungrateful, which was something I never told him about. And then I put two and two together, realizing that this member who I thought was my friend would do this to me behind my back. Right. Now, sometimes in some groups, the way people are encouraged to betray each other is of course it's not called that, but that for whatever ways they do this, they will sometimes make the membership feel like it's for that other person's benefit. It's for their own good. It's to help keep them in line or to keep them on the right path. So that's sometimes one of the motivations. And another motivation is that sometimes you know that if you do that, you're gonna be kind of seen in a positive light by the people in charge. So I'm wondering which one it is in your group or in your former group or both. In the group, it's kind of both, but it's more of like towards like giving impression to those higher up in the group and also to kind of move up in ranking. That's kind of one of the big motivators just to move ranking and also to be under the radar because when you do stuff like this, they don't pay as much attention to you as other as, as other members. For the new people, they pay a lot of, they pay like extra attention to you because you're new and they're trying to get every single intel on you. But those who've been there longer, they still keep an eye on you, but not as much. Okay. How interesting that that's the way you move up in your ranking, you know, by ratting each other out. Because one would think that in a spiritual organization, it that would not be the case, or it might even be the opposite where they might say, you know, don't tell on your brother or your sister and let them be, you know, that there would be an encouragement to kind of live and let live, but not here. Definitely not here. No, And so then you were thinking about leaving for months before that you left, which is also kind of a common scenario. What were you worried about? Or were you worried that something would happen to you if you left? Or that did you think you were leaving God in some way? Did you think that your friends were going to abandon you? What did you think was going to happen? So when I first thought about leaving, I thought that if I left, I would lose all my friends in the group. But during before the few months that 
I left, I actually met with other people who also left and I heard their side of the story months before I was leaving also slowly, but with help, stopped participating in so many of the activities. So when I stopped to think about everything that's going on and realizing that everything is not what it seems to be, I also learned that everything I learned in the group was one-sided. It was very narrow, it's very narrow the way they think. And I learned that there's always two sides to every coin, but you're taught that, well, they don't say this, but you're taught to believe that you should only look at one side of the coin and forget about the other side of the coin. So when I hear the stories of other people who left, I learned that the reason why they left was not what the group told me. So people who left, the three common things they tell you is that they left because they want to pursue a career, they left because they got possessed by a demon, or they left because they wanted to seek marriage. That's technically not the case. That's not why members would leave. Most of the reason why they left is because of how the group system is structured, how abusive the environment is. That's pretty much why they left. It's not. They're not trying to pursue relationship. They're not trying to pursue career. They're not demonically possessed. They they really want to see God. They wanted. They felt as though the Holy Spirit is not there in the group or very limited. Okay. Right. So, so either you're possessed or you want to do these two other things for your life, which I guess would be seen as something selfish, I suppose. Right. Because if that's the reason that you're leaving this, then it's to pursue something just for yourself and not for the world or salvation. Is that, is that what the spin was? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the spin was. So when you leave, it's for some, for some individual reason or for some personal motivation. But when I learned that's not that's not the case, that's never the case. It's never for some personal gains. It's rather the opposite. It's because they want to seek a real community, they want to seek a real relationship. That's why members leave. Right. Okay. And so then when you left, what did you do? Did you just stop coming back? Did you feel like you needed to get kind of reconnected with your friends outside or with your family? What did you do? So after I left, the, one of the first things I did was I did talk with some ex-member here and there. Not not as much now, but I still kept in contact with them. Another thing I did was I did reconnect with some friends. I reconnected with my family. We're on better terms now. And also I had to rebuild my personality again. Because when I was there, I was like a clone. So you have no personality except a cult personality, which is very, which is kind of disturbing and creepy because everyone's the same. They're, Everybody's a clone. I don't know if you've ever seen the showcase next door and then there's the delightful children from down the lane where they all talk like all together. They yeah. all act the same. It's it's, it's kind of like that in UBF. Not to that mm-hmm. extreme, but it's it's somewhere like that where everybody's kind of the same. Okay. Wow. So you had to rebuild your personality. How interesting. Okay. So then when you talk about people being the same, like you're referencing this show, which I am familiar with, is, has that creepiness definitely creepy kind of quality to it. (laughs) I am wondering what that looks like. So let's say if people were to walk in to a meeting of people in UBF, what would they notice that would be the same about all of them just in terms of how they looked or they were acting or the things that they were saying? What would be the same? So one thing would definitely be the same, like if you walk to like their service or one of their meetings is that they have this, I guess we would call like a glassy, they have glassy eyes. It's almost like they're kind of in a trance. Another thing you'll notice that they're kind of the same is just the way they talk. They always use the same vocabulary. They always address people as shepherd or shepherdess, sheep, 
And as far as the leader, they always address the leader as missionary blank. And also, as far as what they wear, where they all wear different clothes, but in conferences, I noticed they all wear the same shirt. Everybody wears the exact same shirt, whether it's a long sleeve shirt, short sleeve shirt, and always they all have the same design as well. Hmm. Okay. So it's like a uniform. Well, it's to make it very uniform. It's all the same. Okay. What do you think makes students more vulnerable to this kind of recruitment? For me, my theory is that why they focus on students is that college students, because they are of legal age, but at the same time, you're still, you're just barely getting out there in the world. So you're still have some form of naivety, if that makes sense. I think that's why costumes are one of the most vulnerable groups because especially if you're a freshman because you're just starting college, you're in this new, you're thrown into this, you feel like you're thrown into this new world and you don't know what to do. And you want to have the sense of belonging, a sense of direction, a purpose for your life if you don't have one. And so that's why you would join a group like that because those promises are offered to you and you want to take that opportunity. Mm, okay. And so the more you were involved, and it, it sounds like you were there for the time that you were in college, did it keep you from making friendships? Did it keep you from meeting other people outside of the group? Yes, it did in a, indirectly because what they do is they, it's, fr- it's considered, it's really frowned upon when you make friends outside of the group, unless they support the group in some kind of way, unless they're not, unless they're not anti of the group, then it's, but but even then that's very, the tolerance of that is very reluctant. So they expect you to be close to the members in the group. Right. So they don't say it outright that you are not allowed, you know, but they kind of make it too hard, I guess, for it to happen. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think sometimes people go to college so they can meet a whole number of people and make friendship circles, make connections, not jump into or onto a college campus only to be kind of pushed into this closed circle, this closed social circle. And I think parents don't realize that that's what's going to be happening when their kids get involved in something like this. Were your parents aware of what was happening and did they have a reaction to it? They were kind of aware that something was off. But my mom, my mom didn't know what to really make of it. And so she noticed how I was becoming more distant with the family. And so when I left, I was welcomed back by my mom with open arms and, you know, saying like, you know, I get, you know, very expressing how glad she is to reconnect with me again because she felt like, you know, we were, even though we're, even though we're still, even though we still live in the same house, we felt like kind of strangers because mm. we don't really interact as much anymore you know, back when I was still involved. Okay. I'm curious also, and then I want to have you finish up with whatever stories you want to share about your experience, but I'm wondering about secrecy. Were you supposed to keep certain information about the group or what you were doing from your family or from your friends outside? Yes, there was this expected of certain secrecy, like when you recruit people, you are never to you're never to tell them like you're actually part of University Bible Fellowship. You're supposed to use the front group name. You're not supposed to go into all detail about the theology and the doctrine that they believe in. And you should only do that when they're interested in Bible study. It's only when they go to Bible study, then you on Bible study, that's when you tell them you still don't tell them the the real name, but you start telling them more about the theology and what UBF believes in. It's only when you go to their international conferences, that's when you realize that, oh, it's actually part of University of Battle Fellowship. It's part of something. It's part of a bigger group. But 
each chapter acts like it's its own branch, like it's independent, but that's not the case. Right. Okay. So before we finish up, what else do you want us to know about this group or about coming out of it? And, and also, you know, if people have had an experience with this group, what they can do. So one thing I want to definitely talk about is the marriage in the group. It's arranged marriage. There's actually two examples in the Bible. It's really Genesis. I think it was chapter 24 with Isaac and Rebecca. There's also the beginning of Hosea. But they base marriage on Genesis 25. That's their that's the spiritual abuse. That's how they justify the marriages. So they're always arranged, but they call it marriage by faith. And so essentially what it is, is marriage at first sight. So you don't even get to know the person that you're marrying. So how it works is here are the requirements. So first, you have to be there at least five years. And second, you have to be in what is called the Kamwa. You have to dorm with other members of the group. And when you dorm, it's it's kind of interesting. It's not on the campus, but it's actually like a housing, a shared housing with that's within the area of the group. And also you have to be super super devoted to the group. So you have to already start being a bio teacher, recruiting people. Actually, this is not a requirement, but this is more like kind of speeds it up or, or if you start going to the daily bread, which they have right before every conference. So after this happens and when they feel like you're ready to get married, they'll tell the future bride and groom, you know, what do you think of blank? Do you want to know who your partner is? And so if it's international or with a different branch, they will show you a photo and say, oh, this is whom God wants you to marry. And they expect the guy to ask the girl, and they expect the girl to say yes. So if one or the other were to refuse, they would get remanded, and or they'll go through some kind of spiritual training, as they call it. They will go through some wacky, some wackiness, some spiritual abuse they come up with to punish you for being ungrateful to God. One of the things they'll make you do is rake leaves across the church. Another another story I heard is where they made this one female member write write Psalm twenty five two hundred times and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay, I did not know about these arranged marriages and that even though they ask you, are you, are you cool with this? And they that would make it seem like you have a choice. You don't really, uh, right? Because, you know, here, make a choice. Both are fine. No, they're not. Uh, one is right and one is wrong. So as we finish up, I know you have a website. Tell people about where they can find more information from you about this. So I have a website. It's called You Be Informed. And that's, I started it shortly after I left. So putting on the information there. And I learned that other members had made websites as well about UBF over the years. And so what, and then another idea I had, which I did just this past year, I started a YouTube channel. I talk about the information I put on my website and what other people put on the website as well. Because one, I want to do something different also for the longevity of it. Because websites, you know, you have to you have to pay for it and then you have to set time aside to read it. And knowing how controlling UBF is, you can't really do that. But if you put on YouTube and have like an audiobook or something like that, you can actually, you know, you can have the time to watch or at least listen to, you know, what's to what an ex-member has to say about this group. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much, not only for educating us about this, but also talking a little bit about what makes people on college campuses and also away from their home for the first time or starting life, you know, and wanting to find a sense of purpose and meaning what makes them vulnerable 
and how there are groups that will zero in on them and take advantage. And also that you're using your experience to educate the public and do prevention. And I, I value that very much. And I thank you for today. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Eric Navas tells us a story that is very surprising for a lot of people to hear, but unfortunately all too common. It's been devastating for so many families who have sent their kids off to college only to have them basically stolen by a group that sees no problem with claiming these people as their own and derailing their lives and putting them to work for them for free labor or having them suddenly judge the fact that they are in school or judge the families who help to make it possible for them to be at school. There are many organizations that exist on and around college campuses that are lying in wait. They are predatory, and they know they have the pick of the litter basically on and around college campuses. Private universities, I've found, seem to have a bit of an easier time kicking people off their campuses than public universities or colleges. But there's a reason that a lot of these groups hover in certain areas around the counseling centers or the dorms, especially during the first month or two of school, when people are having issues acclimating and dealing with just still being in transition and having a hard time, people who are away from their communities and their families who haven't quite made a friend group yet. These groups offer you Insta friends and Insta community. I don't mean to sound paranoid that they're lurking on every corner. They're not. But there are more on college campuses than people realize because many of them use front names. So you would never know that an organization that goes by the name Campus Advance or Alpha Omega is actually a front for a cult. They will often use names that make them seem like legitimate college organizations, like the name University Bible Fellowship. They call themselves University Bible Fellowship for a reason. It lowers people's resistance, and it makes them think that this organization is sanctioned by the school they're going to and has been vetted by the people in charge, and this is not the case. Schools also don't realize that they will often give these organizations space in which to meet classrooms, conference rooms, because they portray themselves as organizations that will help people stay on a good path and the university sometimes just doesn't do their research or the groups are just too slippery to be caught because they keep changing their name and staying under the radar. I remember when I was going to college, there were many cults and also many multi-level marketing schemes on campus. I remember someone who kept trying to get me to sell Herbalife and other organizations trying to recruit students to buy their supplies so that they could then go door to door in their dorms or wherever to be able to sell products for them. And I remember one time walking past a school bus that was picking up a number of students out in front of the main dormitory on the part of the school campus where I live. I wasn't in this dorm myself, so I missed all the recruitment and flyers and meetings. But what I did see was the bus. So out in front of this dorm called Towers was a school bus. And I saw a number of people getting on and bringing backpacks with them and introducing themselves to each other and people who work for the organization who were dressed very conservatively. So I assumed it was potentially a religious organization. Well, they were introducing themselves to these students. 
or reintroducing themselves. Hey, it was great to meet you at that meeting the other night. And these students were just walking up the stairs to the inside of the bus, a consistent stream of students until that bus was full and then another bus pulled up behind it. So I needed to find out what was going on. I asked one of the organizers who was just a few years older than these college students where these students were going. Now, mind you, I'm a freshman in college myself, so I think she probably thought I was interested. And when I asked her where these students were going, she didn't answer me and instead asked me if I was interested in meeting a really nice group of people and spending some time away from the stress of school in a beautiful place and I could meet people who really could be the kind of people I would want to be with. How would she possibly know who I want to be with? We've never met before. She knew nothing about me. And she also didn't know that her evasiveness and her speaking in generalities and redirection was going to make my spidey senses tingle. So I said, what organization do you work for? And she said, I don't work for an organization. Okay, she volleyed it back on my side. So I said, what organization do you volunteer for? Because I had become familiar with this kind of ping-ponging conversation style. And she said, ah, I volunteer for a church. So I asked her what church it was, and she said it was a local church. And I asked her what it was called, and then she asked me if I wanted to meet some people on the bus and see why they were going on the weekend and what they were so excited about. Still no answer from her. This is something I can't repeat enough. Always pay attention to what you are not being told. Sometimes that's more important than what you are being told. And notice how a question is not answered and how things are redirected. It's very diagnostic. So back to this person. She offered to have me speak to some of the students on the bus, and I thought, what the hell? Which is probably not a great expression to use when talking about a Bible-based cultic group. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to talk to some of the students on the bus. I was told to stay on the sidewalk, and she went to go get someone on the bus, a guy who was very enthusiastic, who was going to tell me about why he was excited to go on the weekend. He told me about all about what he was excited to be able to do, what he had heard they were going to be doing there, and that he was really kind of missing his home and his friends, and he was kind of far away, and all these people were so nice. And he really liked the energy of everyone on the bus and everyone who had gone to the meeting and prep for this weekend that it happened in the dorm. People were really positive and they cared, he said. So he asked me if I had any plans for the weekend and what was life about if we didn't do spontaneous things. And it was important not to let opportunities go by by overthinking them. That I thought was fascinating. And then he asked if I had time to go run back to get some things to bring with me, like a toothbrush or pajamas and a change of clothes. So I said, yeah, I might have time to do that, but I need to know, where are you guys going? And he said, we're going to this great center that's up in the mountains. And I asked, well, what's it called? And he said, I don't know. And I said, what's the town that you're going to? And he said, I don't know. But I just know it's beautiful because I've seen pictures. So I said, would you mind finding out where you're going? So we got back on the bus and he turned to the guy who was sitting next to him and he said, dude, where are we going? 
And dude said, I don't know, man. It's like this gorgeous place. And it's going to be amazing. These people seem just amazing. And the vibe is amazing, right? So clearly, he liked the word amazing. But I was so struck by this experience because I thought, here, some of these students worked so hard to pay their own way to go to a major university. And others had families that had saved and scraped and had guided them towards this moment. And now they were on a bus going to somewhere in the mountains with a group of people I couldn't get the name of and with a destination that wasn't clear to anyone as far as I could tell. But they were all excited and busy meeting each other and switching seats on the bus based upon who they were connecting with and who they were talking to at the time, even before they had left to go on the weekend. And I thought, I need to remember this because if I have children one day, I need to tell them that they are never to get on a bus with people they don't know to go, quote, somewhere in the mountains, unquote, just because it sounds, quote, amazing, unquote. So I have told that to my kids, and now I tell it to you. But what was also so striking about it was how much it all clearly filled a need, how much people wanted to connect, how easy it was also to get people to leave the safety of their homes of their dorms, of their lives, to go into the unknown, just because the people they were surrounded by seemed so nice. They didn't need answers. They didn't even need to know where they were going. And I was struck by that because it's a very powerful reminder about how much we need to feel that we're not floating around alone in the universe. And sometimes people are willing to abandon their critical thinking in order just to have that experience. And they don't think about the dangers. They just think about the possibilities and want to believe the promises. So if you know of people who have recently made a transition, who are away from their families for the first time, who have just gone through a divorce or the loss of someone significant or just found themselves to be ill and have gotten a diagnosis, or someone who's recently moved into your neighborhood, reach out to them. Be a safe place for them. Be a safe connection. Be the one who helps to prevent them from being taken advantage of by others who will use their vulnerability, who will use their loneliness, who will use the fact that they're feeling unsteady and give them a false sense of being grounded during those times. People need to be around people they can trust. And if you fulfill that need even for one person, there is a lower chance that they'll be searching for that from someone who promises them something that they never plan to deliver on and then leaves them feeling even worse and taken advantage of. It takes very little to make people feel remembered and to know that they matter. It takes very little to help people feel you notice them. Think about someone in your world who needs that kind of gesture. It will be small for you, but very big for them. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. 
And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.